the title of the talk is actually uh, Economies of Affect uh, rather than e Economics of Affect. Um, but having said that, it, it doesn't really matter because that's kind of an old title anyway. Um, I have a, a, a list of titles on my wall about this long, and, and the, the one that was, uh, was billed uh, today is, is about two-thirds of the way down. So there's at least two or three that have come after it, and probably there'll be uh, another two or three after that. Um, it does actually capture uh, most dimensions of the project. Uh, one term that's not included in this title is identity. And so I wanted to start today by, uh, by or actually to frame my comments today uh, around the idea of identity and try to explain a little bit about how I see myself uh, uh, posing a, a, a challenge to theories of identity. Um, okay. And, I, and just to reiterate what uh, Ted said, you know, the, the project, uh, I've tried to, uh, to stitch together as coherent a version of the project as I can today, but, uh, but there's a, a lot of it that still is uh, a work in progress, and so I really do, uh, I really do need uh, feedback. And uh, some, some of what I'll talk about today is actually quite old. Um, and dates back to uh, the dissertation, you know, three, four, even five years ago, uh, back when I had no idea what I was doing. Um, n not that uh, graduate students don't have any idea what they're doing. Uh, this is my case, my experience. Um, and uh, and so those those old sections uh, need feedback because they're old, and I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, the new sections need feedback because they're very new. Um, particularly the comments I'll make toward the end of the talk uh, are, are very much a, a work in progress, and so I look forward to uh, feedback on that as well. Okay, so th the project is really about reconceptualizing emotion and reconceptualizing the role that it plays in politics. And one of the, one of the items on my uh, reconceptualizing agenda is the idea of identity. I think it goes without saying that identity has, uh, has become a popular topic in IR, also in the social sciences more generally, and in, uh, and in the humanities. And I think some work on identity emphasizes its emotional dimensions, feelings of loyalty toward a group, as well as negative emotions toward other groups, uh, are often regarded as integral to the politics of identity. Emotions intensify and consolidate the commitment we have to a given identity. So we feel pride as Americans, um, and this deepens the normative and interest-based logics that connect us to that identity. But my argument is that constructivists and theorists of identity, and I'm going to lump all of these together uh, under, the, under the heading of identity theory, uh, capital I, capital T. Um, I'm trying to be a little bit more audacious in my formulation. So, uh, so I'll, I'll be offering a, a, an assessment of this identity theory, recognizing, of course, that it's, it's much more varied and, and nuanced than that heading uh, suggests. I think that identity theory hasn't fully captured all the relationships that exist between emotion and identity. So existing approaches have tended to see emotion as a modulating force, as an intensifier of already existing identities. Um, in my view, is that emotions do support and intensify identities, but that they do this in a way that sometimes involves new connections 
new connections between an identity and the memories, habits, and emotions that underpin it. And so uh, one way to put this succinctly is that uh, identity theory has tended to see a one-to-one -one relationship between identity and emotion. And my view is that this is only one of the uh, relationships that exist and that, uh, that in fact, uh, there are others. And so I think that this thesis follows when we recognize that emotions have a strange, peculiar capacity for uh, creativity and change. Uh, so I think emotions are a very kind of special form of agency. And, and I'll explain what I mean by this in a minute. What this thesis suggests is that there's been insufficient research into the affective building blocks of identity. Identity is a kind of convenient shortcut, but too often I think we let it stand in for the diverse affective processes um, involved in social and political life. And so I think international relations uh, needs to supplement identity theory with studies that capture some of these emotional processes. And so my case studies uh, begin this task in a preliminary and illustrative way. I think that a more full uh, investigation along these lines would need to borrow methodologies from other disciplines, um, especially ethnographic and historical methodologies. Um, and so what I do in my case studies is look back at some of the key cases that identity theory uh, has taken as its own and, and look at what they might have left out of the picture. And so the book discusses three of these in particular. Uh, the conflicts, the ethnic conflicts in Yugoslavia, uh, the genocide in Rwanda, and uh, the terrorist attacks on New York, Washington, and Madrid uh, following 9-11. And so, and, and what I find is that, is that there's a more complex story to be told here about the relationship between identity and emotion. Okay. So what I'm going to do today is just say a little bit about some of the problems that emerge in these case studies. Um, make a case for why we need an alternative conception of emotion to capture these emotional processes. Um, and, uh, and then talk a little bit toward the end about, uh, about how, this, uh, how this alternative view of emotions calls for uh, a, in turn, an alternative conception of collective agency. Uh, I think emotions have, uh, uh, emotions demand uh, a new way of thinking about how we act as uh, social groups. I'm going to say, I'm going to uh, suggest that the, the, the term group is not adequate to, uh, to the task. So let me start with, uh, with a couple of these case studies. And I'll just mention very briefly. Uh, a few examples from the two studies on ethnic conflict in Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. And I think these are very familiar cases in international relations, so I'm not going to offer a whole lot of background or context. I'm just going to jump straight to, uh, straight to some of the emotional processes that I see involved. I focus on public events that stimulated affective circulations in each case. In Rwanda, the speeches of Hutu extremists between 1990 and 1994, the, uh, the RPF attacks, the, the Revolutionary Patriotic Front attacking from uh, Uganda beginning in October 1990. So I look at those, uh, those attacks and responses to them. Um, and in Yugoslavia, I look at the Serbian rallies in a very uh, brief period between 1987 and 1989, and also to the 
ethnic cleansing process that uh, process is perhaps a, uh, somewhat euphemistic, the ethnic cleansing uh, uh, strategy that uh, moved village to village in Croatia and Bosnia in uh, 1992 to 1994. So what I found in these contexts was that they involved emotions and emotional processes that aren't well captured by existing theories of ethnic conflict or national identity. And I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time going through uh, the secondary literature and international relations. I'm happy to talk about that afterwards. Um, in in the, the chapter on, on, this, uh, on this topic, I discuss especially the work of, uh, of Roger Peterson, Stuart Kaufman, and David Campbell. And I find that they're either too focused on the symbolic meanings associated with identity, or else too indebted to rational choice frameworks to see emotions as anything but rational preferences um, or intentional choices. And so as I say, I'd be happy to talk about those specifics later. Um, and at this point, what I want to do is, is move straight to the, a few examples that I think aren't well captured by existing theories. So let me just uh, run through these relatively briefly. One uh, emerges from the Yugoslav case and involves the role of Albanian miners. Um, you had a situation in which workers uh, facing economic insecurity, especially these Albanian miners, were drawn into the politics of nationalism, even though ethnic nationalism didn't seem to make sense considering what it was that they were, uh, were concerned with. It involved a concern with ethnic identity, and they were, uh, they were motivated in large part by uh, frustrations over employment and uh, livelihoods. And so in February 1989, the Albanian strikers set off a cascade of affect that uh, I don't think they could have, they could have predicted or, or anyone, uh, any observer could have predicted. After watching the Albanian strikers' protests, the, uh, the leaders in Slovenia, who also had their own concerns about independence and, uh, and their attachment to the Federal Republic, the Slovenian leaders announced their support for the Albanians in a public, uh, in a public statement. Following this, the, uh, the Belgrade TV uh, network decided to broadcast the Slovenian statement within Serbia, and this in turn triggered protests from Serbs who saw a kind of tacit and, uh, and temporary alliance between the Albanians and the, and the Slovenians, um, a kind of affective uh, alliance. And, uh, and, and so in turn, the Serbs, uh, Serbs turned out in, uh, in large numbers the following day to protest this situation. By this time, Milosevic was relatively savvy about these uh, the, the power of these street demonstrations. And so he did what he could to, uh, to uh, essentially uh, support the escalation of affect. And so through, uh, through un sometimes unpredictable channels, the emotions associated with the miners' strike uh, became brought into uh, or integrated into uh, the, the process of ethnic uh, fragmentation. A second example concerns, also from Yugoslavia, uh, goes back two years prior to, this, uh, to the first example, and concerns the peculiar role that Milosevic played at that particular moment. 
And I, just, I differentiate between the role that Milosevic played as an active leader, um, which I think he did uh, more so later on, and his role early on as, as a, his essentially passive role early on as a kind of focal point for emotional, um, emotional energies. And so in April 1987, so almost uh, two years prior to those strikes, he traveled to Kosovo, excuse me, as a, uh, a communist party leader, uh, not yet president, to essentially talk to the Serb minority in Kosovo and to talk them out of their, their nationalist rhetoric. Um, he was still at that point uh, towing the communist party line. But during the visit, he came forth with uh, a, an ambiguous and, and widely cited statement that became a kind of rallying cry for Serb nationalism. He stated, uh, and, and the, the statement was uh, widely broadcast over, over television and uh, also taken out of context, the, what was, uh, what was uh, taken out and made into a kind of soundbite was this ambiguous statement, uh, no one should dare to beat you. And, and, and so this too was a kind of experiment whose effects I don't think uh, Milosevic or any other leader could have anticipated. It wasn't simply a deliberate effort to activate the old symbols of Serbian nationalism. It was an instance of creative synthesis <laughs> in which popular energies uh, essentially were attracted to Milosevic as a kind of new symbol of Serb nationalism. And so from that point on, uh, Slobo became a, a rallying cry for the movement. So there was a kind of creation of new symbols uh, associated with Serbian identity. Okay, a third example, uh, this one from the Rwandan case, involves a connection between the category of Tutsi and the prevailing norms of gender and sexuality in Rwandan society. And again, you know, it goes without saying that in all of these cases, I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a, an area studies specialist, um, and so I'm, I'm relying on secondary literature, and, and I'm sure this is a, a, relatively, uh, a relatively simplistic story I'm telling. Um, a third example then uh, talks about the relationship between this category of Tutsi and prevailing norms of gender and sexuality, the, the viability of the genocide relied upon uh, enlarging public perceptions of Tutsi to include more than just the elites who were responsible for the uh, Rwandan Patriotic Front. It involved uh, expanding the category of Tutsi to include a range of, of sentiments, uh, prejudices, and memories. Uh, that would allow a greater number of people to be targeted. It would essentially uh, allow a civil war to become a, a genocide, to become a mass phenomenon. And so as long as it, uh, as long as it only referred to, uh, to these specific elites, uh, the genocide was not, uh, was not going to be viable. And so one, one, uh, one way of expanding the category was to, uh, to appropriate into it uh, norms pertaining to uh, sexuality, and so, uh, so, so you know, this happened through uh, radio broadcasts and other channels as well, print media, uh, and, and and presumably word of mouth. That uh, that the idea was that Tutsi women were uh, were sexual aggressors, and that as such they should be uh, they should they could be justifiably targeted alongside Tutsi men. And so th this wasn't just an idea about the identity of Tutsi women. It was also a collection of habits and sentiments that underpinned that idea. 
Um, and so norms of sexuality were folded into uh, a kind of highly absorptive politics of ethnic identity uh, and, 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 of course, fear. Okay, one final example, from the, also from the, the Rwandan case, involves memory and the way memories were activated in a very creative, uh, in a very creative way. I think that it's, it's, it's become familiar in, uh, in the literature on both these cases, in fact, this idea that memories were uh, overly available, that they were ready for activation and that there had been uh, long-standing rivalries between the various ethnic groups. Um, and, and, and even among, you know, that, that was a very common view among the advocates of the ancient hatreds hypothesis, but I think even among uh, among others who didn't subscribe to that kind of primordialism, there was an idea that, uh, that, that the problem in these, uh, in these contexts of conflict was one of uh, essentially cycles of hatred, that these emotions had, uh, had conformed to this kind of cyclical nature. And so there was, in relation to memory in particular, there was this idea that, uh, that memories of earlier episodes of violence were... Uh, were were coloring and shaping perceptions in the present. And, and I think that, uh, that, that there's a, a way in which this is, this is true, um, that memories were uh, very prone to reactivation. Um, but I think that they overstate the degree to which memories of violence were organized according to identity. And so in the Rwandan case, in fact, I think what you had during the early 1990s was in a, a kind of systematic attempt to appropriate a diverse range of memories, some of which conforms to, to familiar identity categories, but others of which uh, did not. And, uh, and so many saw earlier episodes of violence, especially in the, in the post-independence period in the early 1960s. Many, many uh, saw these through the lens of ethnic identity. But I think uh, for many, they, they were a much more complicated uh, and, and local phenomenon that were seen in, on local terms or according to uh, particular personalities. Um, and so the, the memories, uh, I think, were emotional, but the emotions weren't limited simply to uh, forms, for example, of hatred that presupposed clear lines of self-other categorization. The memories were more complicated than that. Um, and so I think what, what you saw in the early 1990s was an effort to uh, precisely to, uh, to uh, appropriate those diverse memories into a kind of ethnic categorization. But I don't think the memories themselves had any, uh, any necessary connection to that appropriation. Okay, so a few examples. Um, I think that uh, the explanations of these kinds of conflicts have really struggled to grapple with the, the disjunctures that are, uh, that are evident in these cases. Uh, were the conflicts caused by identity? Were they caused by uh, elite manipulation? Were they caused by economic deprivation? I think that emotions don't give us a kind of magical solution, but I do think that they, they, they help to explain why we see such diverse causal processes. Um, the memories and grievances that became integrated into ethnic nationalism need not have any cognitive connection with the ethnic identities involved. And so these disjunctures or dissonances 
I think are an important element of uh, the, uh, these affectively charged environments. And so I'm really trying to come to terms with the specificity of emotions as responses that are prone to these kinds of disjunctures and dissonances. And so I, I talk about these cases involving synthetic new combinations of emotions and beliefs, and not just a straightforward intensification of pre-existing identities. They're not just modulating forces that, uh, that intensify already defined identities. Uh, they're creative forces that bring, uh, that bring into those identities uh, a more diverse range of emotional responses, memories, and so on. And so what I mean by synthetic is that uh, these affective environments permitted ethnic nationalism to absorb in this, in this way diverse symbols, sentiments, and memories that didn't have any necessary cognitive, uh, cognitive uh, connection with ethnic identity. Um, okay, so I think that understanding this synthetic or combinative aspect, if combinative is a word, this synthetic or combining uh, uh, tendency of emotion. I think that it sheds light on the picture that identity theory gives us about ethnic conflict. Identity theories that do incorporate emotion tend, I think, to gravitate to emotions that fit neatly into pre-existing identity categories. Hatred, anger, revenge, for example. And yet, empirical studies show us that these kinds <laughs> of emotions, uh, these, these emotions that are specifically connected to identities or overtly connected to identities are not as salient as we might think. And so one example uh, would be a, a recent study of the Rwandan case uh, by Scott Strauss. He actually goes out and interviews uh, both uh, suspected perpetrators and convicted perpetrators. And he says, you know, to what extent were you motivated by ethnic hatred? And uh, the overwhelming uh, response is that in fact, hatred was not a, a salient consideration in, uh, for these individuals. I don't entirely uh, agree with the, the alternative story that Strauss puts in, that, in its place, but I think that we do have to come to terms with, uh, with the empirical, uh, the empirical uh, evidence that suggests that these, uh, these hatred-based explanations are, uh, are not fully adequate. And so I think that the attractiveness of identity has kind of temporarily shielded us from the micro-level circulations that are involved in conflict. I think that cognitively rich emotions, uh, such as hatred, are only temporary and relatively fragile creations that are erected on top of what is a, a much more varied, uh, varied collection of affective experiences. So I'm not, I'm not saying hatred doesn't exist. Um, I'm simply saying I don't think it's, uh, it's, the, the, it's as salient as uh, many identity theories suppose. And I don't think it's the best way of conceptualizing the, the complex emotional processes that are involved in, uh, in, in cases such as these. So I think, I think that what these uh, instances of emotion uh, uh, suggest is that we need, uh, uh, we need to think very carefully about what emotions are. I've been thinking about this for four or five years and I still don't really think I know uh, what, what emotions are. I, I may be getting closer, um, but every time I do, there's uh, another half dozen books uh, on the subject that I, I realize I haven't taken into account. So let me say a little bit about this question, about what kinds of things emotions are. And so keep, keep in mind what the, the empirical uh, context that I've just talked about. 
and, and about what kind of image of, of emotion we might need to account for those complex uh, processes or what I'm going to call affective circulations. <coughs> There's now uh, a vast literature on emotion in a range of different disciplines. I think this goes without saying. Uh, especially in psychology and neurobiology, but also in sociology, anthropology, um, and philosophy. I think that contributors of various stripes uh, tend to agree on one thing, that, uh, that emotions are techniques that an organism uses to appraise its environment or to appraise the elements of its environment. So as, as humans, we use emotions to evaluate people and objects we encounter. And we do it in a way to, uh, as a way of, uh, of determining whether these things or people are uh, beneficial to us or threatening to us. So on, on this much, there's, there's largely agreement. Emotions are about appraising uh, elements of our environment. Uh, on, on the specific form that that appraisal takes, there's a vast disagreement. Um, and and, and I, th I think this is changing. Uh, but, uh, but I think there's still a, a wide range of responses uh, to what form this appraisal takes. The dominant approach during especially the 1970s and 80s, to some extent the 90s, came uh, from philosophers and psychologists concerned with the cognitive functions of the mind. And their response to this question was to argue that emotions are essentially detailed beliefs about the sorts of things that are favorable to us and the sorts of things that are threatening to us. And so when we have an emotional experience, we encounter a, uh, an object of emotion or an object that elicits our emotional response, um, we're really deploying cognitive categories that we associate with that stimulus. And so in this view, uh, emotions are essentially a species of belief. I think the result of the cognitive view has been uh, that a large I'm sorry, uh, the result of the cognitive view has been that a, a large literature exploring the cognitive structure of specific emotions. So you have, for example, uh, this idea that grief, uh, an emotion like grief involves uh, the coexistence of two beliefs, the belief that uh, someone has died uh, alongside the belief that that someone is or was of value to us. And when you have those two beliefs together, you, uh, you experience grief. Uh, hatred would be a belief that a particular object or person is intensely disliked, um, and, and so on and so forth. And so cognitivists have developed very sophisticated sort of maps of the, the cognitive structures and belief structures that correspond to these distinct emotions. I think, though, I think that this captures something important about emotion, but I think it also leaves something out. And I think that for most of us not trained as cognitive psychologists, uh, it, uh, it, we, th we think of emotions as something more than, uh, more than simply coherent and logical belief structures. They also have a kind of visceral intensity that the cognitivist view doesn't seem to capture. So, I, and I think that cognitive theories also seem poorly equipped to appreciate the ambiguity or plasticity of emotion. Emotional responses don't always exhibit the uniform and predictable patterns that we associate with cognitive processes. You know, uh, another way of saying that would be emotions don't always seem to make sense. So my view is that emotions contain a creative dimension, and I'm going I'm to, uh, uh, I'll, I'll define what I mean by this term creative because it's a kind of strange category for a social scientific 
research. Um, they contain a creative dimension, and that this results from both their bodily origins, they, they involve responses of the body, as well as from the peculiar kind of cognitive processes that they involve. They don't just involve uh, straightforward beliefs. So what do I mean exactly by creative? This was a term that I, I, I used in the dissertation and then I dropped out thinking it was a kind of, uh, I, I really hadn't thought about why I was using it carefully enough. And, and I've recently reintegrated it after reading, uh, after reading uh, some, I think, more systematic uh, theorizations of the idea of creative agency. Um, so what I mean by creative is the tendency to generate perceptions and behaviors that aren't consistent with familiar cognitive frameworks or reasonable standards of conduct. So an emotion is creative if it contains some unexpected idea or tendency to action. Okay, so where does this creativity come from? I think that to answer that question, we need an alternative to the cognitivist theory of emotion. And what I do is I appeal to a, a multidisciplinary body of research that I, I uh, kind of assemble under this label of uh, Neo-Jamesians. And, uh, and, and I use that term because these are people who are building in part on the insights uh, offered by the 19th century theory of William James. And so the, the category can, combines two groups in particular, and I'm not going to drop a whole lot of names. I'm happy to give you citations uh, later, anybody who's in interested. Um, but it, it encompasses two groups in particular. One, scientists concerned with uh, the bodily and, or the biological and neurobiological origins of emotion. So aiming, people who are aiming to specify uh, or to answer the questions that James had raised, but with better technology, essentially. And this is a, a huge area of research now. Um, and the second is uh, a, a body of philosophical thought and, and, and work in social theory that's concerned with the ontological problems that accompany this, uh, this kind of view of emotion, this view of emotion as composites of mind and body. Okay. I think that the Neo-Jamesian view broadens the parameters of investigation that cognitivists have set up. It does this in two principal ways. One way is by removing conscious awareness as a necessary condition of emotion. It's true that cognitivists sometimes concede that cognitive appraisal is conducted non-consciously, but they tend to then impute all the characteristics of conscious cognition uh, to, uh, to its non-conscious forms. I think the Neo-Jamesian view allows for non-conscious emotional processes that are creative and ambiguous. Um, it doesn't try to impute a kind of cognitive logic to everything that's going on uh, beneath the, the radar of conscious awareness. Um, this is a, a kind of uh, very difficult problem, uh, the, the issue of consciousness and uh, cognition and uh, the relationships between them. Um, the second related claim of the Neo-Jamesian uh, perspective is that emotions ought not to be confined to those with clear and recognizable objects. So sometimes we have emotions without knowing what caused them. Uh, that's just the kind of thing emotions are. We can't always uh, pinpoint their origins. And so, and, and also the Neo-Jamesian view suggests that sometimes we have generalized or global emotions that persist over time and don't correspond to one specific uh, stimulus. And so uh, some of the literature calls these moods, others call them background emotions. Um, cognitivists 
uh, some of them don't allow these into the category of emotion, because, precisely because they don't have a, a, a specific object. Um, I think that you know, emotions for the cognitivists are, are, are necessarily responses with a, a recognizable um, and clearly defined object. So the Neo-Jamesian view uh, offers a kind of more, uh, a more inclusive view of what counts as an emotion. Okay, uh, let me just say one thing about, about the term affect. I think theorists of emotion tend to use the term affect to capture this non-cognitive and usually non-conscious range of emotions. And, and I use the term in, in that way as well. So affects are emotions that are not or not yet subjective feelings with clearly defined objects. Okay, so I think that when we, when we broaden our definition of emotions in this way, we confront a more complex phenomenology of emotion. And so let, let me just cite a few uh, responses and experiences that are captured by the Neo-Jamesian view, but not well appreciated by cognitivists. And these aren't, I'm not suggesting that these are all emotions are, I'm just saying that these are the species of emotions or these are emotional experiences that uh, aren't well captured uh, under cognitivist theories. So, uh, so six quick examples. Uh, first, ambiguous contexts of appraisal in which the, what triggers an emotion is fleeting or ill-defined. Second, is instances where appraisal of one emotional object is shaped or colored by a previously existing emotion. So we anticipate a certain outcome uh, and this mood brings about a disappointment or surprise. Situations in which one emotion bleeds into another, such as fear sliding into anger. Uh, some theorists think that in fact this is the normal way we experience emotions. We never just experience one emotion. An emotion is always part of a much more complex sequence of responses. Uh, fourth, situations where an association between an emotion and the thing eliciting it, the emotional object, uh, becomes distorted. And so we begin what, uh, doing what one uh, author describes as over-associating that emotion with objects to which it wouldn't normally apply. Uh, and, and this particular theorist thinks this is, this is one of the ways that we have emotions, or one of the effects that emotions have on us. Fifth, the tendency of especially powerful emotions or memories to overwhelm our assessment of a situation. So uh, sometimes a situation, sometimes this is a situation that has no cognitive connection uh, with, with that particular memory. So emotions have this kind of uh, tendency to bleed over uh, their original uh, circumstances. The ability of the brain, this is the, the final example, the ability of the brain to recall distant and fragmented memories, uh, this is widely recognized, but, uh, but research has recently shown that, that when the brain does this, it has a tendency to kind of fill in the blanks with fictional content. Uh, so I can't make a complete or coherent story of this distant memory, and, uh, or I, I can't, uh, I don't have that um, fully formed and so I'm going to create it. Um, so I think that the Neo-Jamesian approach uh, captures some of these phenomenological dimensions of emotion and that it does so in a way that, in, in, a, in a, a, a better way than the cognitivist view. And I argue that these peculiar features of emotion give them a special role in forging unfamiliar social relations and ultimately unexpected forms of identity. 
I think the, the neo-Jamesian view doesn't itself offer a, a social or political theory of emotions. So, uh, so what I've done is essentially extrapolate from this view uh, my own social and political theory of emotion. Um, I think some of the scientific <laughs> research on emotion that I'm discussing recognizes that emotional response systems are very sensitive to social processes of learning. That, uh, that these aren't simply uh, in the mind, that they're also uh, embedded in social environments and they're sensitive to those environments. And this, this reflects the, the, this kind of core idea that emotions are about mediating our relations with our environment. They, in, in effect, involve associations between certain objects and certain uh, emotional responses. But over time, those associations, the habits we have uh, for associating or for recognizing emotion-eliciting objects, those habits become socialized, um, and that they develop into they, they develop precisely into habits. Um, and, and these habits aren't simply directives received from the mind; uh, they're also social patterns. They're they're created through lived experiences. They're conditioned by cultural norms, and they're attuned to uh, major social and political events. And so it's to capture this social dimension of emotion that I use the term circulations of affect. A circulation of affect, in my view, is a social pattern of conscious, non-conscious, and embodied emotional responses. It may or may not be overly, overtly associated with a specific event or stimulus. And it's, it's almost certain to involve a combination of different emotions and different kinds of emotions, primary emotions, the hatred, anger, and so on, but also, second, uh, also uh, moods and background emotions. Um, so uh, so it, it's a more uh, encompassing definition of emotion. I think that this concept gives us a, 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 is a better name for the kinds of emotions involved in the cases I discussed earlier. The, the, you know, the frustrations of Albanian miners becoming sort of cascading into uh, the, the mobilization of support for Serb nationalism. Uh, the, the reappearance of memories of violence in Rwanda um, and, and the kind of uh, channeling of those memories into, uh, into the politics of identity. Uh, I, I think that circulations of affect are a better name for these kinds of processes. They're not, after all, simply cogni uh, conscious cognitions of individual minds um, that are triggered by, always by a recognizable stimulus. They're also overlapping and fluid social processes. Okay, so before concluding, let me say something briefly about emotions and collective agency. Uh, I've said that these circulations aren't strictly the psychological feeling states of individuals, but does this then mean that, they're, uh, that I'm talking about collective emotions in the sense that's used by classical sociology? Um, who's, whose emotions exactly are these? And this, this is where things get, get, uh, get uh, work in progress -y. Um I, I had really neglected this question in, until about uh, two months ago when I, when I started, uh, started out here. So, so here's what I have so far. I think that one of the effects emotions have on social and political behavior is to reconfigure the collective bodies that we act within. Um, so one of my arguments is that emotions lay the groundwork for collective agency. And the collective agencies it underpins 
may or may not correspond directly to familiar collective uh, identities. So, uh, so agency and identity aren't necessarily going to, uh, to correspond in the context of emotional experiences. So, so my view of, uh, of emotions, this idea of circulations of affect, uh, regards them as social phenomena. And I think there's, there's social in two senses. There's social in one sense, in the sense that they often involve social relations. As I said earlier, they're, they're essentially gatekeepers that stimulate or restrict our, uh, the relations that we have with others. And so, uh, so, so I noted earlier that they attract or repel us from the things around us. Um, in social context, this means that they mediate the encounters we have with others. So they're social in that sense. I think they're also social in the sense that they can be socially shared. In other words, not strictly in the not stri strictly mental states of individuals. And this view, I think, is more controversial than the first, um, since most social scientists probably regard emotions as precisely as psychological states. And, and it's often suggested that to believe otherwise is to subscribe to a, a Durkheimian view of group emotion that somehow, uh, that somehow is an all-encompassing force that overwhelms our individual agency. Um, and so the result has been to, uh, to reject uh, or, or regard with skepticism any talk of, of collective emotions. In fact, though, I think there are a number of more subtle ways of talking about collective emotion that don't uh, reproduce some of the problems that, that people have with the Durkheimian view. And so when I talk about emotions as social circulations of affect, I mean they're connective responses that bring individuals together into associations. These associations aren't always going to be well-entrenched solidarities or groups. Uh, for one thing, sometimes they're relatively temporary. They don't, they don't last as long as we expect a group to last. Um, but they also don't always map directly onto the familiar categories we have to talk about groups, uh, namely the identity categories such as Serb, Tutsi, American, and so on. In, in my mind, there are ad hoc associations that crystallize around a specific emotional event or context. And so, whereas Durkheim talked about collective emotion overwhelming the individual, my view recognizes that any given individual at any given time is affectively involved in multiple associations. Uh, this is actually not, uh, this is not just my view. This is the view of various sociologists who are trying to, uh, trying to re reconfigure the Durkheimian view. Viewed from the macro level, I think a, a group claims my support through some subset of my emotional, uh, emotional experiences, my emotions and memories. Uh, another group may claim my support through some other subset of my emotions and memories. So at any given time, I have multiple allegiances uh, according to the different emotions and memories uh, I feel. I'm never entirely uh, a, a member of just one group. And this is widely recognized in the literature on, on identity politics, uh, the idea of overlapping identities. I think emotions uh, give us a way of thinking about overlapping identities. Uh, and I think some of, this, some of the support I have for, uh, for each of these multiple groups takes the form of a conscious loyalty. Uh, it takes the form of an identification. Uh, but I don't think all of it does. I think some of that support is tacit or habitual. So I can be a, a, essentially a member of an association, an affective association, 
uh, without necessarily knowing it. Um, and so, it, so these, these connections aren't always as durable as Durkheim supposed. Uh, in my view, collective agencies can be relatively temporary phenomena, uh, expressions of uh, relatively, uh, of, of very dynamic micro-level interactions. And so social theorists have tried to uh, think about this in various ways. One is to talk about, instead of talking about an all-encompassing solidarity, social solidarity, they talk about pockets of solidarity. Um, and I think this, is, this, is, uh, this does a good job of capturing the idea that we continually enter and then leave uh, different associations. But the theorists who, who tend to use this uh, tend to be concerned with very small associations, you know, conversational groupings, uh, office environments. And, uh, and, and so I'm not sure that they're uh, as useful for talking about the sorts of collective agencies we're concerned with in, uh, in political science. Another approach uh, that I'm kind of moving toward, but I don't want to declare my, uh, my unconditional uh, support for, uh, regards, uh, also differentiates these micro-level associations from conventional groups um, and calls them, uh, variously calls them actor networks or uh, social assemblages. And I think that these, these, these concepts uh, come a little bit closer. An assemblage in this view isn't a group of people as we usually think of a group of people. It's, uh, it's a collection of individuals, but individuals as they're connected by specific emotions. Um, and, and by specific emotions and also by the beliefs and identities that those emotions inspire. So, uh, so the unit of analysis, in a sense, isn't the individual, it's the emotion. Um, it's a kind of, uh, it's a pre-individual or sub-individual uh, level of analysis. So, uh, so just to reiterate, while, while an assemblage uh, isn't, while it consists of individual persons, it doesn't define those persons entirely. An individual belonging to, the individuals belonging to, to one emotional assemblage also belong to others. Um, and so both of these theories, the actor network theory and, and assemblage uh, theory, maintain that it's better to, uh, to conduct our empirical analysis by looking at events and processes first, and then looking at what kinds of agency uh, have efficacy within those contexts. So don't start out with actors um, and then look at the effects that they have. Uh, start out with events and processes and then try to read back uh, some conclusions about, about what kinds of agency uh, might have had, uh, had efficacy in those contexts. Let me just, before I conclude, say something uh, quickly about states, a, a unit of analysis that uh, you may have noticed is, is strikingly absent from my uh, from my presentation so far. What I'll say about states is that while I'm not directly concerned with the emotions of states, I'm also not, not concerned uh, with the emotions of states. I, I just, as I say, you know, according to these alternative approaches to agency, to collective agency, I'm inverting the traditional sequence that starts with the state and looks for evidence of its uh, efficacy or salience. Uh, I'm starting with the emotional processes and what I'm finding is that most of the time, they're too flexible and creative to fall under the, the exclusive control of states. Uh, they're just not the kinds of things that a state apparatus, its, its, its uh, agents and its institutions can maintain complete control over. 
However, this isn't to say that states don't, under certain circumstances, uh, exercise greater degrees of control over emotional circulations. So, uh, so in, in, a, in a condition of war or a, a, a situation involving a national security emergency, it seems clear that, that the state's level of, uh, of influence is likely to increase. And this, I think, is, is to some degree what happened in Yugoslavia. You had, uh, as violence and the threat of violence escalated, you had Milosevic's experiments in mobilization attracting more and more legitimacy. And so, and, and I think, you know, a similar uh, pattern can be, can be identified in the American context, you know, with, with uh, the aftermath of 9-11, the so-called uh, rally around the flag effect, and so on. You have in these situations uh, uh, an increase in the state's capacity to, uh, to control these affective circulations. But uh, even where states do influence uh, the direction and content of collective emotions, I think I would still want to maintain that the process is a dynamic and creative one. So in the Yugoslav case, Milosevic's mobilization was always partly experimental, and it had this tendency to absorb the moods, uh, emotions, and memories uh, wherever it could. And in the, in the American case, uh, I, I think a similar thing can be said. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, go over uh, too much here. Let me just quickly uh, say a few concluding comments. Okay, so my argument is that an alternative understanding of what emotions are has important implications for thinking about their role in social and political life. And my, my view expands the category of emotion to include its non-conscious and non-cognitive uh, forms, and I think that doing so allows us to see emotional processes that do more than merely intensify existing emotions. Um, they also change these, or sorry, do more than intensify existing identities, they also change these identities. And so circulations of affect summon unfamiliar memories and emotions and forge new kinds of collective agency that I'm provisionally calling, uh, calling social assemblages. Emotions become, I think, the centerpiece of a more dynamic and creative micro-social environment than identity theory is prepared to recognize. Let me add one more thing about the political, the kind of political upshot of this. I haven't said anything about the, the sort of normative question surrounding emotions. Are emotions good or bad? Are they necessarily pathological? Um, these are questions that I think are often uh, discussed in this context. My overall position is that emotions are neither intrinsically good nor intrinsically bad, um, but, that, uh, but that they're essentially necessary features of human agency. We don't have a choice about whether we're, uh, we're emotional creatures or not. More specifically, though, my account suggests that by studying a greater variety of emotional processes, I think we create space for a more optimistic story about the possibilities of social recovery in these, uh, in these cases of conflict I've just discussed. Um, and I'll just limit these comments to those contexts. I argue that recovery, or, or even the more ambitious goal of reconciliation, uh, which I think you know, theorists like to use, practitioners tend to kind of uh, shy away from this idea of uh, reconciliation as a very realistic uh, phenomenon. But that either of these uh, goals 
does, doesn't depend on the formula that's widely accepted in the literature on transitional justice, the idea that we should be replacing negative emotions such as hatred and vengeance with, uh, with magnanimous gestures of hope or compassion or forgiveness. Um, I mean, I, I, w I wouldn't want to undermine uh, some versions of that effort, uh, although I think other versions of it uh, can be harmful. I think, though, that the social landscape of emotions is already more varied than those categories suggest. And so that I, I think the process and, and task of, of social recovery requires allowing public expressions of a more diverse range of emotional experiences uh, associated with these <laughs> conflicts. So, uh, so I'll, I'll leave it there. And uh, you've been very patient. I appreciate everybody's attention. Um, and I'm happy to answer any questions or try to answer any questions you might have. Yeah, I think um, I think I, I see where you're going. Um, I think I mean to start with uh, on thought versus action. You know, I think I think that I should I should be clear that when I think of agency, uh, I think of a variety of modes of agency. One of which involves conscious thought and sophisticated cognitions. And uh, but that that's not the only kind of agency that we have as human beings. We can also uh, we can also uh, act through various other capacities, and, and I'm including emotions as, as, you know, emotions being the one I'm, I'm interested in. Um, so, so I'd say that as for the origins of creative agency, if we're kind of mired in this, in this, uh, you know, all-encompassing circulation of affect, where is it that we get muster this originality to? Uh, well, I think that, you know, as, as the kind of the, those six sort of phenomenological uh, descriptions that I provided, I think, you know, a lot of them involve not a, uh, 
creativity in the sense of uh, the injection of something absolutely new, but uh, what's creative is a, a new synthesis of already existing uh, memories and emotions. And so what's creative about emotions is that they allow for these disjunctures or these, uh, these new combinations of memories uh, and emotions. <laughs> So I don't think, uh, you know, and I, th I think that uh, that the, the, you know, the, to put it in, in more, to, to ground it a little bit in, in the cases I've just discussed, um, you have, uh, for example, I think that the integration of, uh, of these, uh, these movements concerned with livelihoods and economic frustrations, to have that integrated into uh, the politics of ethnic nationalism is a, a kind of instance of creativity because it's one that uh, that isn't. It's one where there's a, a, a circulation of affect, these these frustrations and anxieties and so on, that are being appropriated by ethnic nationalism that doesn't otherwise uh, concern those uh, directly. There's no cognitive association between those uh, between the, the sort of source of the fr frustration and the the remedy that's being supplied by ethnic nationalism. And I think, I mean, this is, this is actually uh, a kind of version of the frustration-aggression uh, kind of model that, uh, that uh, some psychologists talk, social psychologists talk about. And I think that, you know, they often identify this disjuncture between the, the source of the frustration and the, and the remedy uh, or, or the solution to which, uh, to which people appeal. And, uh, and I think emotions give us one way of thinking about why those disjunctures emerge. So it's, it's not creativity in the, in the kind of, uh, it's, you know, you might want to call it creativity light. It's, it's building, it's, it's forging new associations uh, within existing. I think it can be done cognitively, and I and I, I need to think more about this. Uh, I think that uh, you know I think that in in the context of cognitively rich you know uh, discourses, we're more limited. That the opportunities for those creative syntheses are, are fewer. Whether there's a possibility to have any emotion before you have 
how can he actually have emotions uh, if he did not actually belong to any group in the first place? And how that creates a problem for the collective agency. Okay. Yeah, I think, I mean, what you say about the literature and psychology is, uh, is, is absolutely true. And, I, and I'm not trying to say that there are no instances where emotions begin as kind of rich cognitions and, uh, and that the sort of pathway goes, uh, goes the other way. Um, I think, though, that how can we have emotions before identity? I, think, I mean, I think this is exactly the problem that I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with. And I think that we have, we have emotions before we have an identity uh, identity through which to uh, to understand those emotions uh, when those when those are are kind of vague and cognitively uh, ambiguous and so uh, so we have a, a kind of vague uh, sense of you know loyalty or uh, affiliation or however you want to describe that without necessarily uh, having a rich cognitive framework through which to understand that so I think I think that at any given time we have more Sort of emotional connections than we do ideas uh, with which to describe them. But just a quick follow-up: wouldn't it sort of lead to the whole idea of identity, you know, creating a false dichotomy that identity is always cognitive? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it it is a false it is a false dichotomy, and so that's why I say that I my capital I capital T identity theory is meant uh, as a provocation, but it's not a very uh, accurate description. Um, but I think that there's a difference in uh, in sort of uh, you know how you go about investigating these these things. Do you start with the identity and then look for the emotions that support it, or do you start with emotional processes and then look for the identities that those might sustain? And I think I I think I still think that there's uh, there's a different emphasis there, or there's a different uh, that that those two different emphases uh, result in, in a different <laughs> kind of investigation. Um, so, so what I'm trying to do is loosen the, uh, the necessary uh, status of identity as a starting point. Um, and as for the Kaufman and you know, other not theorists of identity who take seriously emotions, absolutely. And so what I said at the beginning was that I think the tendency is to see emotions as modulating forces, that they intensify these already existing identities. Um, and I think that uh, that one way to think about that is, is you know, for example, somebody like Kaufman, uh, he really talks about the, the process through which uh, Serbian nationalism uh, reactivated already existing uh, symbols and memories and myths associated with Serb identity. And so it's like the, the, the raw material of that identity is already existing, and it, it takes a process of mobilization that, that intensifies it. And I'm suggesting that in these contexts that, the, uh, that there's, there's the, the creation of new, uh, or the association of new memories and, uh, and emotions with, with those identities. So you know, he, he, he suggests one aspect of Serb identity is this idea that, uh, you know, that Serbs had suffered at the hands of, of Croats during World War II. Uh, but that itself is a kind of myth and, and symbol that uh, needed to be created. You know, it, it was created after World War II. And I think in a similar way, we need to be attentive to how uh, new, new creations of that sort are, are occurring in the present. Um, so, am I calling or?
Okay. Um, went straight for the causality, going right for the jugular. Um, I think, I mean, I, this, is a, this is a problem that I need, I need to keep thinking about, this issue of causality. Um, I, I think I'm not 100% sure I agree with, with what you said about consciousness and, and its necessary role in emotion. I mean, I think that the, you know, the, the theories of emotion that, that are out there, especially the ones that draw on you know, scientific research, but, but also others, uh, talk about uh, consciousness as uh, a, a uh, you know, that, that conscious awareness may or may not be involved in emotions. Um, so, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's something you would. Uh, we may disagree on that. Uh, as for the causal role, I mean, I think at this point I've been thinking that emotions are. Uh, instead of themselves having direct causes, they create environments in which causality or causal relations become more complex and plural. Um, so I don't know what you would then call them, uh, a kind of intervening, uh, it's not a variable, but it's a, it's a, uh, it's a context or a condition uh, that, that uh, makes it possible for uh, multiple ch causal pathways. Uh, I think constitutive comes a lot closer to capturing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I don't know if I have a better answer at this point than that on the causality. Well, let me ask an even more basic question. Um, you know, what specifically are the emotions Well, I mean, one of the reasons that I don't come right out and offer an answer to that is that um, is that the, this, the I think that the the task of identifying distinct emotions is one that uh, cognitivists cognitivists have pursued. Um, I think it, it's one that the uh, neo Jamesians that I'm talking about are are more hesitant to become involved with. You know, James himself talked about a kind of infinite variety of emotional experiences uh, to which we attribute uh, you know, imperfect categories, so, or to which, which we organize according to, to an imperfect set of categories. And so for James, uh, you know, the, the, the names that we apply to emotional experiences are just, uh, are just approximations, and that what the, the actual emotion itself is a much more complicated affair. Um, and I, I think that, uh, I mean, now scientists with more technology are actually coming along and saying, well, okay, we were, James was partly right, but, but we can actually specify some of the distinct responses associated with, uh, with each emotion. Um, but anyway, none of this uh, really answers your question about positive and negative emotions. Um, it's, it's true, actually, I mean, I, I don't talk about this, the kind of second um, 
second uh, component to my case studies on ethnic conflict, which looks at uh, the justice and reconciliation and the kinds of emotions that are involved in uh, institution, institutional approaches to, uh, to establishing justice and promoting reconciliation. Um, and in those contexts, obviously, you have a much, uh, a much different, uh, different uh, kinds of emotions involved. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm less concerned with, uh, with specific emotions and more concerned with, uh, you know, part of what, what I said earlier is, is about expanding uh, the, the uh, conception of emotion to include moods and background emotions. And I think those are, those in particular are difficult to, uh, to categorize or, or to, you know, assemble into a neat typology. You know, where does anxiety stop and frustration begin? Um, so, so, yeah, th that's why I don't, I don't kind of begin with emotional categories and then look for evidence of them. Sort of look at, at uh, I adopt a kind of, uh, broader view of emotional processes and then, uh, and then uh, talk about them according to these general categories, background emotions, primary. Oh yeah, no, they list them all. Yeah. Well, I actually fear is an interesting case because, of course, it's so central to the realist framework, and uh, and so I, I didn't. I, you said I, I mentioned fear. I don't think I did actually mention fear, um, but but I think that when realists talk about fear, I'm not sure that they actually uh, are talking about the emotion of fear. I think they're talking. You know, it's a kind of proxy for uh, a lack of information. Or, uh, or some other um, impediment to, uh, to communication or, or cooperation or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that they're theorizing uh, the emotion of fear specifically. Um, so, but, but I think, I, I think uh, fear, you know, I think there are forms of fear that, uh, that kind of transcend the, the distinction between primary emotions, you know, which is where the intro psych textbook would start. Uh, that transcend that distinct, the distinction between those and background emotions. I think you know fear doesn't necessarily have a, a, a you know an easily identifiable object. I think you can be you can be fearful and not know exactly what it is that you're fearing. Um, so so yeah. I mean I I uh, you know I, I I agree that fear is often discussed in international relations. It, you know is is often the emotion that is discussed. I'm not sure that uh, that the contributions that I'm familiar with really are talking about fear as an emotion, rather and rather as a you know as a, uh, a, a, a you know an absence of information or a, a confidence problem.
Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question. I, I think for my case selection, it was really the how uh, route that you described. Um, you know, I'm interested in theorizing exactly as you say, how emotions uh, play a role in, in politics. And, and so, the, so I, I precisely selected cases that, that had attracted attention. And, and specifically, I, you know, I'm interested in, in the way emotions, uh, you know, complicate the story that, uh, that uh, we're told about identity or that we tell ourselves about identity. And, uh, and so I, I specifically picked cases that are often, you know, discussed as instances <laughs> where identity uh, is playing a salient role. So they're n it's not really about testing for emotions one way or the other. And for that reason, I don't have a case that disconfirms, you know, that's sort of, I don't know what you call it, a null case or a, uh, a case in which emotions are absent. Um, I, I do think it would be an interesting task, though. And I suspect that what you would find is that there are emotions, in fact, present uh, in whatever uh, case, you know, you were to, to choose. Um, you know, I, I think that's sort of, you say negotiating a trade agreement. I think the sphere of economic relations and economic bargaining is, is you know, one that's typically thought of, you know, as kind of embodying a, a rationalist, uh, a rationalist sort of uh, framework. And, uh, and and I think that e you know even those kinds of transactions presuppose uh, they presuppose relations of trust, um, and, and also you know relations of uh, they presuppose uh, the existence of some kind of sort of cognitive slack that allows for reciprocal agreement across, you know, boundaries. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's an interesting problem, and I, I, I'm, I kind of have in the back of my mind a, a project on international norms that, uh, that would do just this. It would sort of take a case uh, on human rights where you would expect the, uh, the emotional dimension to play a major role in legitimizing human rights. And, uh, and then contrast that with a case, and I haven't decided what it would be, a case where, where we would think of them as, as, as being absent. So a kind of easy and a hard case. Um, but I, I'm not quite there. I'm trying to kind of uh, move this ahead before I, I get to that. Yeah, 
Well, I don't think uh, I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to remove identity from the explanation. As as I, I it seemed like maybe that's what you were suggesting was that I'm trying to replace uh, identity with emotion. I think the value added is that it tells a different story about what identities look like and what uh, and what uh, and, and what kinds of processes bring about identities. And so it's really it's really a story about advancing our understanding of identity that includes its emotional underpinnings. And I think that those are that those underpinnings are more complex and dynamic and variable than uh, than standard accounts of identities suggest. So it's it's not really about going back to these cases and saying identity didn't play a role. Although I I do think that you know it, it looks like that at moments because. What I'm saying is that certain uh, emotions that are kind of directly uh, related to identity and, or that presuppose a, a kind of cognitively rich uh, understanding of identity like hatred where you have a kind of clear-cut distinction between a sort of in-group and an out-group, um, I'm saying that those emotions are less salient than we might have thought. Um, but I'm not saying that the identities uh, Aren't there? You know, if you think of the, the example I mentioned about about uh, the category of Tutsis in Rwanda, you know, it's it's actually about saying uh, there's no uh, there's no necessary content to that identity. You know that, and, and so in that sense, I'm I'm you know in agreement with those who say you know there's there's no such thing as uh, as ethnicity in Rwanda. Um, I I agree with that. You know, in the sort of anti-essentialist uh, impulse behind that. Um, but I, 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 you know, it doesn't mean that I take those identities as any less any less seriously. I think, though, that that uh, they come to encompass a broad range of, you know, of social uh, stereotypes, prejudices, and memories, and uh, and, and that it, they they come to assimilate those into a very absorptive category of identity. Um, and I think that's different than a kind of essential category of identity. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, I, I think this is kind of related to the previous question about uh, about empirical uh, testing, and I don't see myself. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm not setting out to test a hypothesis about the, the instances in which emotions have efficacy and the instances in which they don't. I'm trying to tell a story about uh, you know if we can assume that they are that they are playing a role. What kind of role uh, can we can we identify? And how does that challenge our, you know, basic ontological categories? Um, so, there's another dimension to your. Oh, the Foucault Weber. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I have an answer to that. I, I would want. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by the contingency. Um, uh, I think closer to the latter, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not. I would, we can talk about it later. I, I, uh, yeah, I'm still not 100% sure. I'm, I'm getting the question in its full.
Yeah, well, I think, actually, I think uh, there's a connection to the question about sort of a typology of emotions. And I think, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that you're absolutely right, that, that I need to think more carefully about, uh, you know, but coming up with some, uh, you know, if not full-blown uh, generalizations, then uh, some ideas about, about what kinds of emotions have what kinds of effects and be a little more systematic about that. Um, so I, yeah, I think I, I think that's that's going to be an important uh, task that lies ahead. On the issue of appraisal, I mean, I think actually what I said was that, you know, I think at this point, almost everybody agrees that emotions involve an appraisal, and so the neo-Jamesians are just saying that appraisal isn't always conscious, um, and. Sorry. Are. Right. And. Yeah. Okay. Well, we we can talk about these details uh, another time. Uh, I think that um, yeah, the the, the neo Jamesians uh, actually I I don't think. They, they are saying that there's no cognition involved uh, by any means. In fact, I, I think everybody's saying that both are involved, you know, that emotions are composites of, of mind and body and that they, they involve, you know, uh, they involve uh, very rich cognitions and, uh, and also uh, more kind of basic bodily responses. And the question is sort of what are the relationships between those different ingredients? And I think they, they t cognitivists tell a different story about uh, about how they're connected. So, um, Well, I think, I mean, I, this is kind of a variation on maybe on Ted's question. Um, I think that, I don't know if you were here at the beginning when I sort of defined creativity, but, you know, I, I see it as, a, you know, uh, responses that are somehow inconsistent with prevailing standards of conduct. Um, yeah, I think not just, not, not just irrational, but somehow uh, inconsistent with prevailing cognitive frameworks. Um, and so, so I think I think maybe what Mike clarified is is to say that I don't equate creativity with uh, with uh, I, I don't have a normative uh, I don't attach a normative valence to creativity. Uh, creativity can result in good things. It can also result in very destructive things. And so, you know, I think uh, you know the sort of paradigmatic uh, case would be uh, would be Nazi Germany. You know, I think there was an intensely creative uh, movement that had very destructive effects. Um, and so, uh, so, and, and I think the same could be said in, in the 
in the case of Yugoslavia um, that, uh, and Rwanda, that these were creative processes um, with destructive and tragic effects. They were creative insofar as they involved, uh, they involved bringing more and more kind of emotional supports uh, under the rubric of divisive uh, identities.